Charles Bowden is often credited as one of the first journalists to predict that Mexico's brutal drug wars would wash across the desert landscape and spill into America. He authored four books about Juarez, the cartels, the human cost of the war on drugs. But he also wrote books about the deserts outside of Tucson, Arizona, the Colorado Plateau, blood orchids, and coyotes. Bowden once told a reporter from The Guardian this, My great pleasure is to go into the wilderness, get myself lost under the big sky out there. And I've written books full of words trying to capture that feeling and describe that landscape. He thrived in liminal spaces, in both the literal and metaphorical sense. He had an uncanny ability to tell a truth that was sometimes far from pleasant. His 1998 Harper's essay, Torch Song, asked us to question what, if anything, makes an average man different from those we define as criminals. And his graphic descriptions of heinous crimes and thoughts chilled my blood, but he spelunked into the darkness of the human condition with such vivid, clear prose, I, I couldn't stop reading. Bowden was a place-based writer. In fact, he was a disciple of naturalist, advocate, and writer Edward Abbey. Bowden, like his mentor, seemingly allowed nature to set his internal moral compass. And that's why I'm thinking about him today. I've been wondering how the first place I ever knew, central Pennsylvania, calibrated how I think and view these United States of America. Because, well, these United States of America don't seem all that united at the moment. Bowden died in 2014, but his work endures, as do several YouTube videos. And one of them, he smokes unfiltered cigarettes and fiercely holds onto his coffee cup. Despite a cantankerous and blunt persona, he's generous and honest as he answers questions about writing and living. Americans think they can change their life. Americans think, I'll move here and be a different person. Americans are on a false quest. The only voyage of discovery is to go back where you started. It isn't to flee something, it's to face something and comprehend it. You're listening to Hidden Language, a podcast about tuning into place, bodies, and time, and discovering the unexpected ways their stories can be told. I'm Jay Varner. And I'm Scott Lunsford. How do the civic and societal mores of our youth shape those we hold later in life? Today, Jay goes back to where he started in search of an answer. I'm nearly 120 miles south of the Pennsylvania border, and still, my home state surrounds me. A large flag of the Commonwealth hangs to my right. Directly in front of me, above my computer, a concert poster from Pearl Jam's May 3rd, 2003 show in State College, Pennsylvania. I was there that night. Various other trinkets populate my bookcases, a tiny figurine of James Buchanan, the only United States president from Pennsylvania and widely regarded as one of the worst. A keystone-shaped Pennsylvania State Trooper patch, a glass mug adorned with Gettysburg National Military Park, a faded Pittsburgh Pirates ball cap. The bookshelf in the dining room is lined with weird books about Pennsylvania. Books about the Pennsylvania Railroad and Canal, 
books about ghosts and legends and highway curiosities. Books about tragedies like the Johnstown Flood and Three Mile Island. <laughs> a good buddy of mine suggested that if a biography was ever written about me, it should be called Jay Varner, the Pennsylvanian. I somehow doubt that others have this many artifacts and heirlooms and reminders of their home states. Why have I turned so much of my home into a museum for a place that I left 18 years ago? Well, if, as Charles Bowden says, the only voyage of discovery is to return to where I started, then I need to discover just what it is about PA that has molded and shaped who I am. In particular, I'm thinking about things like community and democracy and commonwealth, because that divided thing about the United States... I don't know, uh, maybe has something to do with these concepts. So I'm going to start in the way, way back. Back when those early European settlers of central Pennsylvania left western Germany's Rhineland. Agriculture-rich hill country. It's similar landscape to where I grew up, albeit the Germans had a far more impressive river. Our version of the Rhine, the much smaller Juniata, was thought to have been named after a mince pronunciation of a native term for standing stone. Legend says that the original inhabitants of the area, the Onojudahaga people, had erected a large stone along the riverbank. Not much else is known about them. History suggests that by 1648 they had been forced to join the far larger and more powerful Susquehannock, part of the Iroquois nation, and less than a century later, the Tuscarora, a group of North Carolina and Iroquois seeking safety after losing land to war and treaties, moved northward and spread into West Virginia, New York, and the Juniata River Valley. Eventually, the Lenape, another Iroquois tribe similarly displaced, moved into the valley and aligned with the French during the French and Indian War. Around the start of the American Revolution, my ancestors undocked in Philadelphia. Eventually, they made their way to Mifflin County and found that the Juniata River Valley had been carved out, plowed over, and leveled off from the frontier wilderness. Of course, by then, the natives had either been killed or driven out of Pennsylvania. The Pennsylvania Canal flowed along the Juniata, delivering supplies and transporting locals and tourists. Not far away in Lewistown, Foundries, said to have produced the best steel in America, radiated orange around the clock. Abolitionists used farmhouses in the area as part of the Underground Railroad. And when Lincoln called for volunteers to fight for the Union Army after the fall of Fort Sumter, the first men to march into Washington were from Mifflin County. I read about all of this history in a 100-page book called A History of McVeightown Borough and Bratton and Oliver Townships. Without chronological structure, the book explores the history of the area's churches and public schools. There are photos of the devastation left behind by natural disasters. And there are histories of local companies. Prior to advances in transportation, most businesses were local. Timber mills, sand mines, photographers, drugstores, doctors, morticians. There are photos of the community attending plays and pageants at the local schools, crowds cheering the high school sports teams, pictures of those who volunteered with philanthropic groups and civic organizations. 
The surnames of those who contributed stories and photos are the surnames of the earliest settlers. It seemed that little had changed between the area's settling in 1795 and America's bicentennial in 1976, which was when that book was produced. However, in the 45 years since, my hometown has followed the path of so many small towns in America, sliding into a steady decline that writer George Packer explored in his 2013 book, The Unwinding, an inner history of the new America. No one can say when the unwinding began, when the coil that held Americans together in its secure and sometimes stifling grip first gave way, Packer writes. Like any great change, the unwinding began at countless times in countless ways, and at some moment the country, always the same country, crossed a line of history and became irretrievably different. Pennsylvania officially declares itself not a state, but a commonwealth, a distinction shared with only Virginia, Kentucky, and Massachusetts. The idea of commonwealth has pretty much vanished. Commonwealth gives value to the public. Commonwealth recognizes that citizens hold a valuable voice in a Republican government. At one point in history, the term referenced the struggles against the British monarchy for expanded freedoms. Commonwealth simply meant what one took care of collectively. English villages deliberated on the proper way to care for shared and common lands. What's the best route for this road or footpath? How do we manage and designate farmlands or design public buildings? This tradition arrived in the colonies along with European settlers who had fled their nations as they saw the moneyed gentry seize common lands by violence. So, we can see that Commonwealth is portable, and that's essential to helping fuel democratic creativity. Democracy doesn't reside inside an institutional structure. It's, it's something each of us carries. It's a way of life. And because of that, it needs to be tied to the skills we use in everyday life. It is us, the people, who are the ultimate producers of democracy. And it is us, the people, who preserve and enhance our ideals. Or, at least our government was designed as such. In this era of late capitalism and democratic decay, I think it's safe to say that we've lost Commonwealth. It seems that Societally, at least, we focus solely on taking care of nothing but ourselves. And this is especially true within rural areas where the ebbing of community was deceptively silent for decades. In 2017, the Public Religion Research Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan research organization, and The Atlantic collaboratively published a report. They found that at least once a month, 30% of white working-class respondents participated in a sports team, a book club, a PTA, or a neighborhood association. However, 70% of the people in rural areas either did those activities only a few times a year or not at all. Researchers also discovered that those who never left their hometowns tended to hold less education, wealth, and hope for the future. 
The best and brightest citizens almost always leave their small towns, or so the story goes. Of course, there's a case to be made that the best and brightest could have a true impact on their community were they to return home. But there's no way to know if these people would actually even involve themselves, and I'm not suggesting that those who choose to stay don't contribute in meaningful ways. Still, that study makes the case that the vast majority of those who stay mostly eschew civic responsibilities. For instance, small towns lacking adequate tax revenue to fully support infrastructure often rely upon volunteers to staff ambulance and fire services. Nearly 70% of firefighters in America are volunteers, according to the National Volunteer Fire Council. My father was once one of them. Though there has been a slow increase in the number of volunteer firefighters since 2011, that's the year enrollment numbers hit rock bottom, it hasn't been nearly enough to make up for the 30 years of declining numbers. Why have so few people joined? The organization blames increased time demands, more rigorous training requirements, and the proliferation of two-income families whose members do not have time to volunteer. What do we choose to do with our free time? That's assuming free time exists. Class and family dynamics certainly dictate this. If you work two or three jobs to make ends meet, or if you're raising one or more children, the time available to help fight injustice is pretty limited. Plus, the division between work and home disappeared once email and the internet arrived in our homes. Smartphones now combine both, and we stream as ubiquitously as we breathe. Our news and entertainment bleed into one another because the powers that be rely upon what they perceive to be our passivity. They know the cumulative impact this has on us. In fact, they are counting on it. They need us to be exhausted and confused. They need us to steal from the late cultural critic Neil Postman to be entertaining ourselves to death. It falls upon each of us in rural communities and everywhere else in America to make sure that these things do not happen. It means that each of us owes it to ourselves and our fellow citizens to not succumb to passivity or hopelessness. This is more than merely a moral calling. Active, engaged citizenship and commonwealth are the basis of our republic. What are your responsibilities and into this country that grounds itself in an inalienable right to pursue, with no promise of reaching, happiness? And how is your happiness connected with the happiness of your friends, your family, your neighbors? How is it connected to the health of your communities? And what's the difference between the shared pursuit of public happiness rather than a solitary quest for a private happiness? In 1681, William Penn, yes, if you remember, this all started with Pennsylvania, wrote the following about my home state. It is a clear and just thing, and my God that has given it to me through many difficulties will, I believe, bless and make it the seed of a nation. I shall have a tender care to the government, that it be well laid at first. No more now, but
but dear love and the truth. The only voyage of discovery is to go back where we started. And we started as a commonwealth. And commonwealth remains a clear and just thing. You have been listening to Hidden Language. For a list of episodes, transcripts, and show notes, be sure to visit hiddenlanguagepodcast.com. Theme music by Jay Varner. Other music for this episode was provided by Kai Engel. If you enjoy this podcast, please spread the word using whatever language you see best fit.